the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Sometimes a simple mistake can lead to something incredible. On March 23, 1960, a dangerous man was born who, had it not been for a simple mistake by some brilliant scientists, may just have gotten away with the brutal murder of two 15-year-old girls. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On November 21st, 1983, Linda Mann, walking home from a babysitting gig in Narborough, England, decided to take a shortcut that would take her off her normal route. Hours passed, and when she had not returned home at her expected time, parents and neighbors combed the streets looking for the 15-year-old girl. She wasn't found until the next morning, raped, strangled to death, and abandoned in a footpath known locally as Black Pad. With very little in the way of forensics, Investigators were able to determine that the person who left semen behind on Linda's body was a male with type A blood with an enzyme profile that matched only 10% of males. While this seemed like good news, there was very little investigators could do with nothing to compare their sample to. The case remained open. A little less than three years later, on July 31st, 1986, 15-year-old Dawn Ashworth was walking back to her Enderby home from a visit with a friend with her parents expecting her to arrive at around 9.30 p.m. When she failed to do so, Dawn's parents called the local police and reported her missing. Two days later, her body was found, just like Linda's, abandoned near a footpath. In fact, the bodies were found only a few yards apart. She, too, had been beaten, savagely raped, and strangled to death. With a matching M.O. and semen samples to prove it, police knew both girls were killed by the same man. While investigators regrouped to come up with their next course of action, citizens of Narborough and the surrounding villages became paralyzed with fear, fearing their daughters could be next if the police didn't catch this dangerous man. Given this mounting fear, police were quick to find a suspect in Dawn's murder. It seemed that 17-year-old Narborough boy, Richard Buckland, not only knew Dawn, but seemed to have some details about her murder that were not released to the public. When questioned, Richard buckled under pressure and admitted, multiple times, to the rape and murder of Dawn Ashworth. He was charged on August 10, 1986, and appeared in court the following day. Now, while this seemed like a slam dunk, 
Richard, a young boy with learning difficulties, refused to confess to the murder of Linda Mann, despite the fact that police were absolutely certain the murders were committed by the same man. While all of this was going on, with police certain Richard was lying, geneticist Alec Jeffries made a remarkable and completely accidental discovery that would alter not just this case, but hundreds more in the future. During a failed experiment, one he set up to study which inherited illnesses passed through families, Alec extracted DNA from cells and attached them to photographic film, which he then left in a photographic developing tank. When he took the film out, he noticed a sequence of bars that, much to his shock, showed the breakdown of each string of DNA. Meaning with this new technique, one could identify an individual through their DNA with remarkable precision. It could also be used to find familial matches. With the help of Peter Gill and David Warrett, who helped to expand this discovery in a number of ways, Alec, of course, published an academic paper about his discovery. As a result, he was asked to assist in a number of cases involving children being denied British citizenship because immigration officials were disputing their lineage. But realizing his discovery could be used for something a little bigger, Alec Jeffries started lecturing about the use of his discovery in the apprehension of criminals. The audience laughed out loud at his suggestion, but after Richard Buckland's court appearance, someone had the foresight to contact Alec and ask him about his new science and if it could prove he killed Linda in addition to Dawn. Alec agreed to carry out his tests on Richard's blood and compared the extracted DNA to the semen left behind on the girls' bodies, something that had, up to this point, never been done before in a criminal investigation, a technique we now call DNA fingerprinting. After working through the night, Alec pulled his film from the developing tank and was immediately struck by the differences between the two samples. That the girls had, without a doubt, been raped by the same man, but that that man was not Richard Buckland. He told the police as such and, though reluctant at first, they set Richard free after more than three months in custody. He was the first individual to have his innocence proven by DNA fingerprinting. The scientific discovery had just prevented the grave miscarriage of justice, but unfortunately, police were now back at square one with their investigation. Not sure what to do next, the Leicestershire Constabulary and the FSS undertook the investigation and decided to use the same evidence that exonerated their suspect to catch their killer. Putting out the news to the public, investigators asked that all local men, born between 1953 and 1970, submit their blood or saliva samples that they could compare against semen samples they had back at the lab. Two testing centers were established, one at a local school and the other at a council office, that tested three days a week for eight months. More than 5,500 local men volunteered a sample, with very few declining, as the process began receiving national and international attention for both its ingenuity and, in some opinions, its moral implications. At the end of the eight months, there were no matches. Among the men who willingly handed over a sample was 27-year-old baker Colin Pitchfork. Colin, born March 23, 1960, was a father of two young children and had, three years earlier, been questioned about his movements the night of Linda's murder. He said that he had been looking after his young son and was cleared of any involvement. However, in August of 1987, more than a year after Don's murder, one of Colin's colleagues, a man named Ian Kelly, was having a beer with a few friends when one of them mentioned his friend Colin. That's when Ian made a shocking confession. 
that he had impersonated Colin and had taken the investigator's blood test on his behalf. According to Ian, Colin said they had taken the blood test for a buddy of his who had been convicted of indecent exposure when he was much younger, doctored his passport to contain Kelly's photo, and drove him to the testing site at the school. After six weeks of mulling the story over, one of Ian's friends took their story to the police and Ian Kelly was promptly arrested. After speaking with him, Colin Pitchfork was arrested and, after reading him his rights, the detective asked, why Don Ashworth? Colin's response, opportunity. She was there and I was there. Colin Pitchfork, prior to his marriage in 1981 to a social worker, had been convicted of indecent exposure and was referred to therapy at Carlton Hayes Hospital in Narborough. But with the exception of this indiscretion, Colin's record seemed relatively clean. He'd been working in Hampshire's bakery since 1976 and was a skilled cake sculptor who hoped to open up his own cake decorating business. He was a father of two, a good worker, and an involved husband. Definitely not who one would picture when looking for the merciless killer of two young children. However, when questioned further, Colin admitted to exposing himself to more than 1,000 women since his early teens. That eventually progressed to sexual assault and then to strangling his victims in order to protect his identity. Following his arrest on September 19, 1987, Colin appeared in a Leicester Crown Court where he pleaded guilty to two counts of murder, two counts of rape, two counts of indecent assault, and one of conspiring to pervert the course of justice. The court was provided with a psychiatric report detailing his diagnosis of a, quote, personality disorder of psychopathic type accompanied by serious psychosexual pathology and warned that, if released, Colin would absolutely strike again. To prevent this from happening, Colin Pitchfork was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years. With this sentence, Colin became the first person to be convicted of murder based on DNA fingerprinting and the first to be caught as a result of mass DNA testing. Though his guilty plea prevented the science from being presented in court, the sciences developed by Alex Jeffries, Peter Gill, and Dave Warrett altered the way forensics looks at DNA and how the criminal justice system handles testing. It has, time and time again, helped to solve a number of seemingly unsolvable cases. On April 22, 2016, the Parole Board for England and Wales heard Colin's case for early release on the grounds of his improved character while behind bars. The families of both Linda Mann and Don Ashworth unsurprisingly opposed his parole. It was denied seven days later, but it was recommended he be moved to an open prison. His parole was denied again in 2018 and became eligible once more in 2020. He was released in 2021 at the age of 61 and will remain on supervision for the rest of his life. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on March 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.